Hey, hey Jesse. Katie, how's it going? Uh, pretty good. I got some, um, I guess, unfortunate news this week. Is it about a benign growth on your finger or is it more serious than that? Slightly more serious than that. Um, so I don't know if you know this about me, but I used to have a job. I did know that. Yeah. So um, before we started this podcast, I was a staff writer at The Stranger, which is Seattle's uh, only, I think at this point, alt-weekly, although technically it was an alt-bi-weekly. Um, and when the pandemic hit, The Stranger, like basically every other media organization in the country, um, took a massive hit to our revenue. And so in early March, I uh, I volunteered to take a furlough. And I did this sort of like on a whim, like my boss was sending out emails to everybody saying like, things are really bad. We're going to do a fundraiser, like, you know, share the link to the fundraiser if you can. And so just like totally on a whim, I just wrote him back and I said like, hey, if, you know, if, if you have to do furloughs, like I'll be first in line. And I did this thinking that it was totally impossible that there were going to be furloughs. So it was a like an absolutely empty gesture. Oh, and then no. like two hours later, I got a call saying like, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the offer. You're out of work for the next eight weeks. So that, after that, a lot of other people were also laid off. And then so the, the other the eight weeks came and went. And, um, and then this week, uh, my former boss called me and said that the furlough, my temporary furlough was now a permanent layoff. After my boss told me this, that I was laid off, you know, this like the really hard part here was that I had had this this like long dream of walking out of the the stranger in just like a fit of rage at some point. And <laughs> I can't do that anymore. There the the pandemic stole my dream of of quitting in a in a in a fit of righteous indignation. What um I mean, first of all, all joking aside, that does suck. You are an awesome journalist and it um you know, this is such a shitty time in our industry, and I'm I'm sorry that happened. But I have to say, I'm a little bit curious. In this fantasy scenario where you stormed off in a rage, what what would that have looked like? What would you have been enraged about? So there was a lot, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be one of those people who like, you know, gets laid off or gets fired and gets like very bitter about it and spends the next like ten years bitching about my former employer like it's a bad ex which the stranger does have sort of a long history of this there's a a, a facebook group for bitter ex stranger staffers and i hear that they actually like have get togethers and parties i don't think i will be invited to these however unfortunately um but there are you know so i don't want to be i don't want to be one of those people and the truth is like in some ways it was a really good job, but there were also, I did have some like real frustrations. Um, there was like what I would call censorship going on on the inside. Not often, but there were small things like, do you remember the, the Jesse Smollett thing? I do. Okay, so after Jesse Smollett claimed to have been like beaten by these like MAGA hat wearing, you know, racists in the middle of the night in Chicago, my bullshit meter immediately went up. Like not even like he hadn't even like finished the sentence. And I was like, didn't happen. Um, and so I had like, while the rest of the world was offering their condolences about this, this terrible hate crime, I immediately wrote a piece saying like, we should, <laughs> we should not believe Jesse Smollett and they wouldn't publish it, which uh, like later, you know, I like my, my skepticism um, was validated. So there were just like, there were things like that where like, you know, I would have some opinion that I thought was a pretty, like, frankly, anodyne opinion. Um, and there would be a lot of pushback because the paper was like very progressive and uh, 
like in a very progressive city, it's very homogenous. Um, and my contrary opinions were not always welcome there. So I did have, I did have like a lot of frustration. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to like burn all of my bridges. I do, I do, however, want to tell you one story that I think will illustrate a little bit what it was like to work there. So I should say, before I tell this story that the stranger was like my literal dream job, there's two places I've ever wanted to work in the world. And the stranger was one of them. It was like a, it was a big honor to work there, but it turns out that like dream jobs can also be nightmares at times. Um, and so I think this like this illustrates it a little bit what it was like to work there. So when uh, when the pandemic started, there's a conservative radio show in Seattle. And I actually don't even know of the show, but the, know the name of the show. But it's hosted by this guy named Jason Rance, and Jason is is conservative. He like we agree on very little in terms of, of politics. But Jason asked his listeners to donate to the stranger. And he said like, you know, I think the stranger does like crap work, but they're an important part of like the local media landscape and we need to have diversity of media. Um, and so he asked his, his listeners to donate and they did. And so we started getting donations from people who were like, I never read your paper. In fact, I hate everything that you stand for, but Jason Rance asked me to donate to, to save your paper. So I'm doing it. Which I just found like very touching. Yeah, that's classy of him. It was really classy, and and like not only would we never have done that for him, had his show or his station gone under, we would have celebrated it. I am one hundred percent sure that somebody would have written a post crowing about Jason Rance losing his job. And so I I asked Jason after this if anybody from the paper thanked him, and. Nobody had. Nobody had said anything about it. And to me, it was just like, I was really embarrassed about it. And so I thanked them. I publicly thanked them because I'm not afraid to thank conservatives when they do something right just because they're conservatives. But I was just really embarrassed about that. Like, this guy is going out of his way to help us out. And we can't even, like, say thank you. Right. So anyway, it's over. I'm, I'm like, pretty convinced that I'll never have a staff job in, in media again because there are no jobs. And even if there were jobs, I think I would have a hard time getting one, to be totally frank about it. So I have decided to go into my second career, my backup plan. I'm going to be a diversity trainer. <laughs> I think you'd be really good at that. I mean, first of all, you are diverse. You're a, Jew a Jewish lesbian, gender nonconforming. Non-binary woman. First of all, like I've been on Twitter too much during the pandemic. And just like every day, there's new layoffs. It was uh, There was BuzzFeed. There was Quartz. And it really sucks. And even when it's publications that like have lately started to drive me crazy because um, the what you described going on with The Stranger, I think, is a bit of a trajectory. And I've, I've talked and written about that. It's just there's less and less breathing room within progressive media to be a little bit, I don't know, original or, or, or critical. And but still, just these jobs are not coming back. Like journalism was already in a crisis. This really feels like a death blow. And it's so depressing to watch. And I'm very sorry you lost your job. And I, I too, I was thinking when I was on staff at New York Magazine, it was, it was a little different. I, I left before things got really bad um, to write a book. But I, like part of me is just like, it's really unlikely I'll ever be in a situation again where I just have the full institutional support of an organization and the backing to to do the stories that I want to do and, and to know it'll be, um you know, I don't have to go broke doing it. So this whole thing is, is heartbreaking. And um yeah, th this is journalism's loss that you no longer have 
a staff job. So I, I hope against hope that you're able to to find something. Thank you. You know, and I I should also say that the stranger did have my back in some ways. I. It was a place where, like, I historically have not been a person that, like, typically gets along with bosses. And this was sort of a reverse case where I actually did, like, get along with with upper management well. Um, But there was a lot of hostility, as you can imagine, um, basically from everybody under 40. (laughs) (laughs) You and I and a few, you know, a number of other people sort of who occupy a similar space in the media landscape as we do are not liked, you know, and it's not so much about sort of personality as it is like the things that we write. And it's weird. It's very strange to, to feel like, um, to feel like a pariah because you, I don't know, you like wrote an article critical of me too, or something like that. It just like, it just feels very strange to, to think like, all right, all of these progressives around me would rather me not have a job. Yeah. There's, um, we've talked about this, but there's like a, I don't want to complain too much because, like, I'm still in a lucky position in many ways. But there's like a, a a cruelty asymmetry where even the journalists I hate, who I think just are are hacks, I would not pull a lever to make them lose their job. I don't want anyone to lose their job. I want people to to do better as a as goes in the argo of our times. But um, they would absolutely not return the favor for you. I don't think so. At least I mean, I have some people in mind who wouldn't. But um, yeah. What's um. Well, now that you have extra free time, what's what's this podcast we're doing called? <laughs> this podcast is Blocked and Reported, the only podcast. And I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And this week we're going to clean up some, uh, tie up some loose ends on the whole Chrissy Teigen, Allison Roman thing. Yes, there is more to say about it. <laughs> we're also going to talk about this really epic tweet storm that sort of seems designed to make sure white people never do anything anti-racist ever again. I'll explain what I mean by that. I'm going to talk about how it ties into this concept of um, feel-bad liberalism and and love to get your thoughts on that. But um, a little bit of housekeeping first. One of them is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the day most listeners listen to this, which is Monday, May 18th, it will be your birthday, correct? Yes, it will be my birthday. How did you know that? Uh, Let's just say we're Facebook friends. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you are a good journalist, Jesse. Yeah, exactly. I, I tapped all my sources to figure out my contacts in the State Department. Um, I don't want to embarrass you or put you on the spot, but the last six months, I've put all my other projects aside to write you a, bir- a birthday poem. <laughs> um, so I sort of, I collected the works. I studied the greats from Robert Frost uh, to that other guy and that one girl. And yeah, can I just read you what i came up with oh please do this is called happy birthday katie by jesse single (sighs) okay i might get a little emotional for clemped (laughs) happy birthday katie you are my co-host of all the lesbian podcasters it's you i like the most remember that time when we riffed on the news when we had so much fun and decided you were Jew ish. (laughs) Remember when all those people on Twitter got mad at us and we vaped on that bridge on the canal in Gowanus. It's your birthday. That's cool. I hope that it rules and that you don't suffer gladly fools and that someone gives you jewels. And even though journalism is crashing and burning, I hope that our friendship will keep right on churning. (laughs) That's it. That's the whole thing. Jesse, that is beautiful. I think that you should quit writing your book on the replication crisis and just shift to poetry. 
I did. Like, I, I canceled the book contract so I could work on that poem. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe Jesse's Poetry Corner should be a reg- regular feature of the podcast. JPC? Yeah, JPC. Thank you. I really appreciate that. That was probably the only present that I'm going to get. So very much. <laughs> um, well, let's let's get right into it. So last week we talked about um, Allison Roman and Chrissy Teigen and uh, two loose ends I want to tie up. One is an email from a listener and the other was um, Roman apologized. So let me start with this um, email, which I fucking lost. Give me one sec. Okay. So, so our listener, Chris, sent us what I thought was a thoughtful email, and I'm curious what you think about this. One of the tweets we were dismissive of, um, the author of the tweet storm rather said, quote, Chrissy Teigen has had to tap dance backwards in high heels to corner a fraction of the market share affluent white women with palatial New England farmhouse estates have had quartered since the 80s because she is a woman of color. So Chris... Chris says, like, we didn't mention that tweet. He basically wants to know if we disagree with that. If we disagree with the idea that Chrissy Teigen has had to work a lot harder, just have a fraction of the success as like an affluent white lady. What do you think of that? I just don't know the evidence to back up that claim. I don't know how hard Chrissy Teigen works. Um, You know, as far as I know, you know, until sort of recently, she was a model and a wife and a mom. And she was famous because of this sort of internet presence. Um, you know, she was discovered when she was in high school. I'd say she cer- certainly had fewer barriers than ugly people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. Like, we know who she is because she's beautiful. I mean, and, and, and like, nobody talks about beauty privilege, but she absolutely has that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's a good thing. She's beautiful. Um, yeah. Like, how, like, is Chrissy Teigen harder working than, than Gwyneth Paltrow? I have no idea. And I don't think anybody, you know, who, like, doesn't work directly with them could be able to answer that. What do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I guess, so I'm of two minds. One is that, you know, I, I actually do believe there is such a thing as implicit bias and that we're all susceptible to it. Um, the problem is, I, I think there's this flattening going on. And, and part of what we were responding to was this idea that Chrissy Teigen is like a capital W, capital O, capital C woman of color. Like it's this oppressed category. And that by dint of being in that category, she's automatically the bullied or the oppressed in this situation. And to me, um, I believe her background is she had a, a Norwegian American dad and a Thai mom. I think in the sixties or seventies, someone who looked like her, who is who is mixed race, would would have had a very hard time. In our world, she was noticed as a high school cheerleader and like very quickly became successful. So the question is, I guess you could you could like really galaxy brain this and say, would an equally attractive white cheerleader have been as successful it's just it's hard for me to i know we're supposed to say that it's obviously true that that she was harmed by her race and i think um i I looked up sort of what she said about it she said some touching things about like sort of you know not knowing where she fits in being biracial i'm sure along the way people have made me comments to her and that she's been microaggressed and stuff i just i don't know when i think of like racism i think of structural racism i think of what what you know black and latino people in particular have real obstacles on average that white people don't have. And I guess I just don't see that here. And I know some people would say that sort of makes me ignorant or bad person, but I I'm just, 
a little bit confused by the claim, I think. Yeah, I would love to see some evidence. I mean, if, if whoever tweeted that has some evidence that Chrissy has put in more hours and has gotten fewer rewards than um, equally attractive white women, I'd love to see it. Um, but I don't think she's particularly made that claim herself. No, I, I'm, I'm actually fairly orthodox progressive on a lot of race stuff. I, I really do think like there's still tremendous obstacles and the racial wealth gap is like crazy. White families have 10 times as much money as black families. There's also like in some quarters, people want it to be the case that things are just as bad as they ever were. And like, I was, you know, I was watching um, a clip of Tegan where um, her husband, John Legend was filling in for Ellen and then she made a surprise appearance. So you have, you know, a, a brilliant black musician married to a model who is a Thai Norwegian filling in for a talk show, hugely popular hosted by a butch lesbian. And that's like, that's increasingly what America is in 2020. And I I think that's awesome. It it shows that we have made progress. And I think it's just hard to extract from like a situation like this, much racism. There's a lot of racism out there. It's just like, you need to look where it actually is. You know, this sort of reminds me of the racial dynamics around something like Me Too, right? Where the focus is all around these sort of hyper, hyper privileged cases, you know, people in the media, women who are celebrities, people that we've all heard of. Whereas I suspect that where you really see, you know, the effects of the greater effects of things like racism and oppression and prejudice is at the bottom of the yep. rung, not at the top of it. Yeah. But that's, you know, but we're talking about Chrissy Teigen and not, you know, like all of the nameless people who experience racism that we would never heard of. Um, yeah, it, there's there's one other element that, that I we forgot to talk or that I forgot to mention last time. Um, so Chrissy Teigen, I really like her. I like I think she's really charming. She, she apparently also has a long history of being a bully and being a bully to children. <laughs> This woman, just like a month ago, this woman named Courtney Stodden, uh, who I had never heard of before, um, came out with this story about how when she, when she, it was like in 2011, in the early 2000s, she married, she was, this girl was 16 years old and she married some 50 year old. So she basically, a, you know, like a teen bride. And Christy, who she'd never apparently interacted with, like hated this woman, this woman, and really like went on this like insane, unhinged bullying campaign against a 16 year old girl. Um, and so this woman just actually like released a, so- a song about it. Um, song about being bullied by Chrissy Teigen. So I suppose she's trying to capitalize on this. And I haven't actually seen this stick to Chrissy Teigen at all. But there have been multiple cases of this where she's like, has documented, like started pylons and can then continue to like, bully children. Oh, my God. So I, <laughs> it's I don't know. It's Dude, just like she released a song. Yeah. She released a song about she, it. Yeah, she released a song about it. I think it's called bully it's cloud chasing all the way down. It, it really is. Everybody's a victim and everybody's a bully. And maybe the 16 year old really did get deserve to get bullied. I don't know. Anyway, what do you think of Alison Roman's apology? Because she said, I'm reading from it here. I'm a white woman who has and will continue to benefit from white privilege. And I recognize that makes what I said even more inexcusable and hurtful. The fact that it didn't occur to me that I had singled out two Asian women is 100% a function of my privilege. Being blind to racial insensitivities is a discriminatory luxury. Um, yeah. What is she saying that? Cause she has to say it, or do you think she really thinks that? 
maybe both. I mean, I don't think she had to say that. I think what she should have said is like, I spoke, you know, uh, I spoke out of turn. It was, you know, it was rude and insensitive of me to call out these women and it wasn't racist. Um, I would have had a lot more respect for her if she had, if, you know, for one thing, like apologizing very, very rarely makes these things go away. Um, and I saw like a lot of people said that her apology was like, this was an exceptional apology because she had like really like bended, bent down so far. Um, but no, I mean, it read like a fucking, like a hostage statement. Yeah. It's just, it's so weird to me that like, we're, we're in a cultural moment where it's like almost more beneficial to say, yep, I'm racist than it is to deny it. It just like, I guess I just, this whole thing, I think it sort of, trivializes racism a little bit but that's probably do either of us have more to say about this i feel like it was a fascinating moment but it's like it feels like it was like two years ago this happened now right i just this idea that she's like you know that anytime you criticize a woman of color especially the like women of color who have power and prestige it's automatically racist i just don't understand who's going to benefit from this this rule in society calling Um, calling marie kondo who grew up in one of the most ethnically homogenous countries in the world as a member of the majority group calling her a woman of color is just such like a source of confusion i mean it's just like i i don't know it's just the language is way too flattening i wonder if marie kondo is even aware of this (laughs) of this this controversy it turns out marie kondo is just incredibly racist so she just yeah 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 yeah, totally she's probably racist against chinese people all that all that stuff about like cleansing your apartment and getting rid of stuff you don't need that's all euphemism (laughs) the final solution (laughs) The final solution to clutter. Uh, <laughs> all right, should we uh, should we move on? Yeah, let's move on. Enough of those. Okay, so the other thing I want to talk about was I came upon this like pretty amazing, very viral tweet storm. So so this tweet storm is is by a woman named Allie Henny. She's like an um, online activist type. As always, we'll link to it in the show notes. Here's how it starts. Um, this this is related to the the murder of uh, Ahmad uh, Arbery, you know, this horrible murder in Georgia. But Ali Henny goes, I've noticed that with every killing of an unarmed black person, there are white folks who decide that they want to, quote, fight racism. I'm not here trying to kill your vibe. I'm happy you're here, but it's also time for some honesty. So let's sit down and have a chat. Then she says, gestures toward my kitchen table where there's a pot of hot water and tea bags waiting. So this like very popular tweet storm just proceeds to like, basically she's talking to someone who is, you know, hypothetically expressing an interest in helping and making sure these horrible shootings don't happen again. And it's like, the whole thing is just berating this hypothetical white person who wants to help. And, you know, she keeps calling them child as in child. She keeps talking about their white fragility, you know, basically telling them they're white supremacists, even though they're not trying to be. And, and this whole thing, just like, it was such a good example of this, I don't think I was the first to like raise this concept, but I do think I, I coined this term of, of feel bad liberalism. And I, I haven't written about this yet, but I put it in a tweet storm last year. It's basically like this brand of liberalism where the goal seems to be to want to make people feel like shit. And it, it, it induces like self-flagellation. Like she's writing for an audience of, of the same kinds of white women who would like uh, pay Syrah Rao to come to their dinner and help them unpack the racism. It's like people seeking out uh, self-flagellation or, or other people flagellating them. And I just think it's so 
bankrupt and so designed to just like get people to buy more training and buy more books. And sure enough, at the end of this woman's tweet storm, she like puts her Venmo information. Am I sort of like, I don't know. I mean, I know you, you don't like this stuff either, but sometimes I, I, I'm watching like, should I just ignore it? Is it online bullshit? Just, it feels like so much of the present way we talk about injustice is, is this stuff. I'm just like trying to make people feel like shit, but not in a way where they're going to want to become involved. Cause I feel like someone new to like the struggle for racial justice who comes across this upon this tweet storm is going to be like, well, fuck this. I'm not looking for someone to like berate me. Right. Although I think a lot of people are looking for someone to berate them, oddly enough. This, like, I remember the first time I, I heard of anti-racist training. So this was probably like 10 years ago. And and the first time I heard this term, you know, I, like I had friends in, the, in the, the queer community that I existed in who would go to San Francisco every year for these anti-racist trainings. And I thought that the whole thing sounded insane at the time. Um, and now anti-racism is an industry. I mean, there is a lot of money in these diversity trainings and these, you know, implicit bias trainings and whether or not they actually work is a whole other conversation. Um, But it's definitely an industry. Like I had about a year ago, I had, um, I had coffee with a, a, a young wannabe journalist in Seattle. And so this person, uh, non-binary, they, um, told me that after graduation, I was like, you know, what are you gonna, what are you gonna do when you graduate? And they said something like, well, you know, if I can't get a job in journalism, I'll just like, I'll probably just like go into diversity training. And they said this as though like when I was out, like getting out of college, I would have said like, well, you know, if I can't get a job in journalism, I'll probably like get a job at a restaurant or a coffee shop or something like this. It was like the default backup plan was diversity training. And apparently this is a thing. This is like, this is like what young people can go into now and get a job. And, you know, you can't fault them for that. Like people need work, but it's absolutely an industry. And I would be love to know how much of this industry has actually like, like, has this had any positive impact? Do these diversity trainings have any positive impact on anything? I mean, you know more about this than I do. What does the data say? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been working on a piece about the stuff that sort of got tabled just because of that whole uh, pandemic thing. And uh, no, basically all the research, there's very little research to show like this or that approach works. And worse than that, like a lot of the more like, uh, cutting edge stuff. They don't even bother to test it. It's just like, it's assumed it works. And especially in the case of the more confrontational stuff, you could absolutely see it having like the exact opposite of the di- desired impact. Cause what, what you're saying about women who seek it out, like that's women who are already liberal right. or see themselves as part of the struggle. Right. Like this tweet storm is specifically directed at someone who's like entering this stuff for the first time. And it's just like, not the way to go about it. This idea that, you know, you can shame people into changing their behavior or, or, you know, changing the way that they feel about race. It's just it doesn't work, Um, you know, and people continue to try to use it as though you can somehow shame somebody into believing what you want. Yeah. I mean, I think like, don't you think shame can work if it comes from people you actually care about and like sometimes who are members of your community, sometimes if it's done in the right way. But it's like a double edged sword. It's very easy to like if you shame someone for them to have a defensive reaction and just be like, fuck you. Right. I mean, that's sh- that's that's the effect that shame has on me. I am impervious to shame. If somebody attempts to shame me, there, <laughs> it's not it's not going to make me change my behavior. It'll probably make me double down. Um, and and you know maybe I'm a less sophisticated thinker than the than the the intended recipient of this tweet thread, but I, I sort of doubt it. Yeah. It. I mean, like when I tweeted about this and wrote about it in my newsletter, all these people are like citing Nietzsche or like certain religious traditions. I I think there's like an aspect of human nature 
where it feels good to say, I'm a piece of shit. I lie in judgment of you, whether you is like God or just someone who has authority over you. Right, right. I mean, that's extremely fun, especially feeling morally righteous. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, who is the tweet thread really meant for? Is it meant for people who like need to be educated on anti-racism or is it just meant for that woman and all of her friends to, you know, pat themselves on the back? You know, we live in such echo chambers that I would be interested to know in how many like actual racists this tweet storm even reached. <laughs> well, no, like it's for her and her friends, but it's also for there's no shortage of white liberal women who want to be told they're bitches and that right. they're terrible people and that they need to do better. That's like the market for for the Robin D'Angelo approach. And I just I don't think it actually improves anything. Well, I'm thinking it has improved life, life greatly for Robin D'Angelo. That's true. Um, so Robin D'Angelo lives in Seattle, or at least she was a professor at the University of Washington. And last year at The Stranger, in the springtime, we do these sort of vacuous women in power episodes or issues. Um, and it's just like puff pieces. And um, I really wanted to write about Robin D'Angelo because that is a woman with power. And I wanted to like inspect you know, like what, like, look at the actual data and has this, has her, her anti-racist training actually done anything because she's a, she's an incredibly beloved figure locally. Um, but instead my editor made me write about someone who provides abortions. There's been very little, there's been very little like critical coverage of her approach. Cause I, I read her book for this article I'm working on and, um, um, well, we're, we're going to discuss this in an upcoming segment. We'll, we'll be talking about this episode, uh, don't worry, I'll explain that shortly. Um, but yeah, there's like elements of what she does that's very crazy and radical where you just wouldn't expect it to work. It's just people write a lot of puff pieces about her. So I would have read the shit out of a Katie Herzog, like actual critical look at what she does. I wanted to get into her house. That's what I really wanted to see. <laughs> does she have like African African uh, masks on her walls? I think that'd be highly problematic. <laughs> oh my God. There is a, um, do you remember, I think it was... Actually, I don't remember when. Sometime last summer, Khalifa Sane at The New Yorker wrote a great review of um, of Robin D'Angelo's book or Robin D'Angelo's work. Yeah, it was it was her book and Ibram X. Kendi's book on um, how to be an anti-racist. This is like a searing review essay. We'll link to it in the show notes, but everyone should read it because The New Yorker also ran a total puff piece review of D'Angelo's book by a white woman. Um it, the author of this other critical book review essay is not white. So it was just like the dynamics that were very interesting. All right. So, so before we wrap up, we have um somewhat big programming note, which is we have launched our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash blocked and reported. And the basic idea here is for now, we are keeping this weekly podcast free. Um, if you like the podcast and you don't want to pay for more, keep doing what you're doing. This will show up in your feed every Monday. If you want more, uh, we have two tiers, five bucks a month. You get two extra episodes a month. And by the time you listen to this, one of those will already be up. So you'd be able to just sign up and listen to an extra segment we're doing on what is coincidentally another diversity um, related story involving Google and sort of tying back to the infamous Google memo and all that. So you might enjoy that. That's the $5 tier. The $10 tier is you get those two extra episodes and we're doing these group chats once a month and they ask me anything feature once every two months. And, you know, this is all just us, us seeing how big we can grow this thing. We've been really happy so far with the listenership and especially if it does grow, we're likely to add more perks and more features, maybe more tiers. But yeah, just, I, we sort of soft launched the Patreon earlier today and we've been really happy with the response so far. And you know, it, it's tough times economically, so we totally appreciate 
you just listening if you can't sign up right now, but we're really excited to be able to do some extra stuff. And if you are potentially interested in listening um, and you have some feedback on the kinds of stuff that you know would make you more likely to shell out five or 10 a month, please email us at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at the bar pod. Continue rating and reviewing us on Apple podcasts, of course. Yeah. And um, uh, it, I think, you know, it's possible that if we get a lot of, patreons uh, or, or subscribers um you know we'll have some some additional tiers for like the real high value spenders you know I, like foot picks for one your foot picks of course um i can yes. i can send nudes nude pics of my dog um I'm, i would also be willing to tell people the name of my blog that i had when i was in my early 20s um and Ooh. you could you could that would be like a that would be like the premium like the thousand dollar a month tier i could give you that and then for like five grand i'll tell you the name of the band i was in you were in a band i so i'm not very musical but i used to be and this is extremely surprising to people who know me now but i used to be wild and extremely fun and so i was in a band and my my job in that band was to dance topless wearing a horse head mask oh my god really yeah, there's there's video, and for uh, $10,000 a month, I will tell you the name of the band. So this is this is quickly basically just going to ge- degenerate into pornography, isn't it? I mean, I, it's not sexual enough to be pornographic. It's more disturbing than sexual. Yeah. Like, I wore, I wore, like, nude pasties, so I looked like kind of... And I don't have very big breasts anyway, so I look sort of like the Marilyn Manson, you know, like, nippleless, featureless, <laughs> wearing a horse head mask. But I did this, like, for a shockingly long time, um, and we played, like, big venues around North Carolina and actually went to South by Southwest at one point. That's... Okay, at some point, we're going to have to get into more of these stories of yours, because I think you have more wild youth stories than I do, but um, this is the kind of stuff you could uh, have access to. We already had one person very generously sign up at the $20. You can sort of set, you can pay as much as you want, but Alexandra, thank you so much. $20 a month is incredibly generous. Um, Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we, um, again, even if you can't subscribe, you will continue to hear this podcast every week. And yeah, we're looking forward to doing more. Thanks for listening. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, all our listeners are exactly the same, but the ones who give us money are even more the same. And I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, it's always racist to criticize a woman of color unless she voted for Donald Trump.